Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, censoring the marginalized in Mormonism. Brother Derek, how you doing, man? Well, I'm here. I'm excited to talk about these things with you. We'll see what how this conversation goes. I don't know exactly what I'm going to say, but we're going to see what happens. <laughs> Indeed we shall. And like we ever are disappointed by what you have no. to say when you don't know what you're going to say. So I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts. I don't really have uh, anything by way of announcement immediately to start out with. So let's just get right into it. Um, but before we do, I want to remind y'all that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Okay. So we are in Doctrine and Covenants sections 133 and 134 mm -hmm. this week. Um, very different sections. These are actually like this is a we're kind of backing up in the chronology a little bit. We went from reading stuff that was written or published in the 1840s to stuff that was published back in you know, the 1830s, early in the 1830s. Uh, 133 was published in 1831, and uh, one, or the Revelation was received then in 1831, and the Revelation for 134 was 1835, I believe. I'm going to say 1835, but, you know, check mm -hmm. me on that in case I'm wrong. Um, But yeah, when we get to section 1833, there was a, uh, this is what Joseph Smith had to say about section 1833 and its origin. You what said did I 1833. say? 1833. Dang it. Yeah, 133. Thank you, Derek. <laughs> but this is what he had to say about it. At this time... There were many things which the elders desired to know relative to the preaching of the gospel to the inhabitants of the earth and concerning the gathering. And in order to walk in the true light and be instructed from on high, on the 3rd of November, 1831, I inquired of the Lord and received the following important revelation, which has since been added to the book of Doctrine and Covenants and called the Appendix. So, this should probably be read beside section one of the Doctrine and Covenants because they are very similar in uh, tone, a very apocalyptic tone that they both take. And they uh, clearly complement each other as the, uh, as the bookends of the Doctrine and Covenants. So we get all kinds of uh, conversation about the last days, about the coming of Christ. There's talk of angels there's talk of uh i mean what else is in here there's a lot of, there's a lot mm -hmm. of language about going to zion and leaving babylon I, I think you see that phrase go ye out from babylon quite a few times mm -hmm. in uh section yeah there should be a coming out party. so there's <laughs> yes there should be a coming out coming party. out of babylon but uh anyway this like Zion versus Babylon thing also occurs a bunch in section one. And uh, that kind of frames a lot of the doctrine and covenants. And uh, then also this language about sanctifying mm -hmm. yourselves, sanctifying your lives and becoming Zion. That is also a theme of both sections uh, one and 133. And again, they begin and end the doctrine and covenants uh, for a reason. 
So, yeah, that is more or less the tone of what we are messing with in section 133. Uh, where would you like to begin in section 133, yeah. Derek? I don't well, have I anything sort of two I want to questions. Really... One is, yeah. here's, a, here's a pro tip for everyone. Ask yourself, when you're looking at a text or a doctrine or a policy or a whatever, uh, ask yourself, how does this function? And this apocalyptic language, like what purpose does it serve? And how does this function in the early 1830s environment? And how does it function for us today? And some people might say, well, it functions to give us insider advanced details about all the curiosities of the coming of the Lord. I'm like, no, that's not really how it functions, at least for me. It functions to inspire vigilance and diligence, right? Not not fear and not anxiety, like, oh no, Jesus, come. but it's like, we don't want to have this sort of unhealthy view of the second coming. We want to say, look, we've got a rescuer that's coming soon, like help is on the way. We've got this idea of the sheep and the goats judgment at the second coming in Matthew 25, which tells us that um, when Jesus shows up, he's going to divide us based not on, well, what ordinances did we check off? Did we do the checklist, right? Mm-hmm. It's, right. did right. you care for your neighbor, right? Did you mm-hmm. visit people in prison? Did you visit the sick? Did you feed and clothe people? Did you give people water to drink? Did you, like, that's actually how we're going to be judged, it's not based on, well, did you check off all the ordinances? It's not going to be based on, did you X, Y, Z, all of these things. And and that's sort of my approach to the temple. And going back to some stuff that we've talked in the previous previous weeks about, about saving ordinances. And the other thing is, mm-hmm. I, and we're going to get to this in a few weeks anyway, but if you look at section 137 about the salvation for the dead, what we've got is a very interesting thing. It says in verses 7 through 9 of section 137, all who have died without a knowledge of this gospel who would have received it if they had been permitted to tarry shall be heirs of the celestial kingdom of God. Also, all that shall die henceforth without a knowledge of it who would have received it with all their hearts shall be heirs of that kingdom. For I, the Lord, will judge all men according to their works, according to the desire of their hearts. So the question was here in section 137 around the, those who have died before the restoration of the gospel or just died before they hear the restored gospel, what's going to happen to them? And God's like, oh, yeah, don't worry about it. Like, I've got you. We're going to we're going to figure out what would have happened if they had been around and if they had the chance, right? It's go it's I hate to use the logic right. of it's all going to work out because that can be used to shut down legitimate questions, but it can also be used to say, "Hey, let's not focus on the stuff that in the end God isn't going to be focusing on." And I think mm-hmm. people say, "Well, you're you're not sealed. You're not to me, right? You're not sealed. You're gay. You're not married to a woman. You're not X, Y, Z. You're not all this." Mm-hmm. I'm like, "Yeah, I have nothing to be afraid of because I'm going to be judged according to the desire of my hearts, and that should um, bring some balance to the conversation, especially when we go back to this uh, 
the uh, apocalyptic language around the second coming here in section 133 and also in section 1. It should um, give us hope and vigilance and endurance. And there's a sense of wakefulness, right? Like look at the, also in Matthew 25, the the parable of the uh, the virgins acting as bridesmaids and the oils and being prepared, stuff like that. That's mm-hmm. how I think it should function. Not like, oh, Jesus is coming, so I need to um, not save for retirement, right? That would be not, that's not how <laughs> this is supposed to function, right? right and it might right. be good for our listeners to go back and review our episode on DNC section one that we did at the very beginning of the year, just to kind of wrap it up with the bookends. Uh, yeah, that's kind of what I was uh, thinking. And this this ties back into verse 10 of 133. Yea, let the cry go forth among all people. Awake and arise and go forth to meet the bridegroom. Behold and lo, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. Prepare yourselves for the great day of the Lord. So yeah, this is an exciting thing. The we who are on the side of the Lord should not have anything to fear from the Lord. This is a this is a wedding happening. We're gonna have a celebration mm-hmm. when when the Lord gets here. The other thing is, when you're looking at these texts, ask the questions: Where do you find Christ in this, and how does this point to? At least for me, how does this point to the Christ that I know in the New Testament? And the Christ that I know in the New Testament isn't about um, trying to play gotcha with people and trap people. And and uh, that's Jesus in the Gospels and it does anything and everything to reach people. Like he's willing to extend himself mm-hmm. and not uh, play gotcha and try to catch us and and uh, try to leave traps for us. That's not the Lord's plan. And I think there's ways of reading language about the second coming in ways that don't testify of the Christ that I know of the New Testament. So that's mm-hmm. um, where I'm going to leave that. And the last thing I want to say right now is it would have been good for me to go through a line-by-line analysis of this section and seeing well where did the language come from because there's a lot of intertextual echoes with the bible you can look at mm-hmm. there's something mm-hmm. our listeners should know is called source there's criticism of- is trying to look at mm-hmm. uh look at a text and see if there are pre any pre-existing sources that were used in a literary way in the composition of of the text that we have right and i think there's something sacred about God using human means, right? God works with small tools. Wait, how does that work? Uh, how does that sit? How do I, I'm so tired, I can't even remember though. Um, out of small and simple things, God brings great things. How does that go? Oh man, this is real bad. This is real bad. For great me. things yeah. come to pass. So that's what I'm saying is like having one person sit down and using a very normal human process of remixing a text that was uh, right there into something new 
is a legitimate way. And you're, you're going to see this in the Book of Mormon. You're going to see this in the New Testament. You see this in Doctrine and Covenants. You have a lot of echoes of the Bible. And I think that's the key to sort of unlocking what's going on in section 132, which we didn't go into all the details of every line. But I think it would be worthwhile to go through and see every line of 132 that came from the Bible, what what does it mean? What was it doing in its original biblical context? What is Joseph doing with it now? And how is he using the best language he has at the time to encapsulate something that is quite challenging to express? Anyway, maybe I should stop there for and 133. Is, no, it's fine. And I wanted to know why he wanted to uh, use this particular language in talking about uh, what is, in essence, uh, missionary work. Like, that is, uh, in essence, the context, or at least part of the context around which Joseph Smith had right, received exactly. this revelation, that this has something to do with the spreading of the gospel abroad. And uh, I was wondering why he was, uh, you know, invoking imagery or invoking language very similar to, you know, what John used in uh, mm -hmm. the book of Revelation. Yeah, I think it is, going back to the, my question, well, how does this function? One of the functions here is to energize our missionary work, both in the 1830s and 40s, and then today. And I think what it does is, it really speaks to the character of God, and the, and the, and the uh, image of God in all of us, even, and how that should be the fundamental underlying motivation and energy and fuel for our missionary work is knowing who God is and knowing who God's children are. That's kind of what, what I think is going on here in section 133. But there's nothing else to be gone over in 133. Are you good to go to 134? Yeah, let's go to 134. Okay. So the background for this particular section, we are in Kirtland, 1835. This section is basically coming about because our government as a well, or at least our views about government seem kind of uh, undemocratic and therefore a threat to our neighbors. The leaders convened at this time to listen to Oliver and Sidney present the doctrine and covenants for their approval. And then after that, Oliver read what is now section 134, which which appears to have been written primarily, if not exclusively, by Oliver Cowdery himself. We we don't know for sure who authored Oliver Cowdery, but or authored section 134. But just based on this language and the other writings we have by Oliver Cowdery, it just very much looks like it was mm -hmm. him who wrote it. But this is just to say that this is not. This wasn't a revelation from God or anything like that. It was, but it was canonized mm -hmm. um, for the Doctrine and Covenants, obviously, and uh, endorsed by Joseph Smith on at least a couple occasions. So, what we got here in section 134 is basically a collection of our beliefs, um, government that attempts to, our beliefs about government that attempts to pacify. Uh, our neighbors and inform our neighbors who are sometimes hostile towards us. And uh, we want to let them know basically that we're just as American as the rest of them are. And uh, by the time we get to the end of this section, that's going to be a difficult thing to disagree with. But uh, 
yeah, that's more or less the context of what we got going on. 1835, we're still mm-hmm. dealing with the hostility of our mm-hmm. Missouri neighbors. And uh, this is more or less intended to be the church's beliefs on government so that people can know where we're coming from and also understand that we're more alike than we are different. Uh, do you have anything to add to well, that, Derek? I uh, want to throw a wrench into this thing by saying that this statement on revela- uh, on government is, um, is really one of two statements that were presented at at this same time, and the other one was on marriage. And this other mm-hmm. statement was canonized as section 101 of the Kirtland 1835 Doctrine and Covenants. And both of these statements may have been written by Oliver Cowdery. Now, the thing about the state, I want to quote this one on marriage for sort of uh, several particular purposes. So, uh, the interesting thing about this section is that it was canonized. It was part of the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants. It was part of the 1844 Doctrine and Covenants as well in Nauvoo. But it was removed in 1876 and decanonized. And this is, as far as I know, the only section of the Doctrine and Covenants that has been decanonized in our tradition and when i quote it you're gonna we're gonna figure out why it was decanonized the first part of dnc 101 talks about our view of marriage and how marriages should be publicly uh accountable ceremonies that is publicly accessible and that um it gives some of the language around how how that how those vows should be made and then 135 uh, later on it says in as much as here I'm quoting in as much as this church of christ has been reproached with the crime of fornication and polygamy we declare that we believe that one man should have one wife and one woman but one husband except in case of death when either is at liberty to marry again, close quote. And so this, of course, did not represent how Joseph and later Brigham ended up practicing marriage. And so that is why it was removed under the direction of Brigham Young in 1876. Now, our friends in Community of Christ have had this particular statement in every one of their editions of the Doctrine and Covenants up until today, and it is currently section 111 in their um, in their edition of the Doctrine and Covenants. Now, why am I mentioning all this? One is to supply some stuff that I didn't say last time when we talked about section 132. The second thing is to give an example of how earthly and human the process of canonizing and decanonizing is. Like, just because something's in the scriptures doesn't mean it always has to be there. And we get this with the proclamation on the family, which A, isn't even canonized, and B, even if it is, that doesn't mean it won't be superseded by later revelation. And so in 1876, Mm -hmm. that's when section 132 was canonized and replaced, and and who knows, like, I'm not going to comment as to... Like what the effect of was was that a good 
move or bad move or whatever. Move. I mean, my instinct would be to take an option three approach to DNC 132. That is, some people will just want to cling to it tightly and be option one. Other people will say, well, there's nothing redeemable in section 132. We should throw out the whole thing because it's bad for women. It's bad for single people. It's bad for queer people. It's bad for trans people. It's bad for... And yeah, that that's real. But the option three instinct would be to say, hey, you know what? There's a crash. And we realize that DNC 132 won't pan out to be what it needs to be for everyone. And that's a crash. And so we have to retell it. We have to figure out, well, how, what are we going to carry forward and what are we going to leave by the wayside and retell the narrative in light of the crash and so i think that's what we have to do and part of retelling the narrative gets back to there may come a point where we have to decanonize portions or uh, or all of section 132 and replace it with something more inclusive more expansive because even section 132 itself says it's not the final word on this and of course section 132 has already right. been right. partly abrogated by official declaration one of course so there's just mm -hmm. so many twists and turns there's so many human contingencies in how this all plays out that we can't have an arrogance about knowing exactly like this is the voice of the Lord in any final sense on these things. Right. And so that's why right. oh, we're really supposed to be talking about 134, but I'm saying this is a parallel case <laughs> of, and I'm saying this because a lot of people may not know about section Kirtland 1835, section 101. What are your thoughts or reactions? Well, I'm glad you brought up this lack of uh, finality because it harkens back to something I believe we discussed back in section one, when we are basically told that we're given truths right. through a human filter, through the Joseph Smith filter, which is situational, contextual, mm -hmm. imperfect, limited by a variety of factors, including education and social location. Section one, verse 24, for example, we're told that these commandments were given unto God's servants in their weakness after the manner of their language that they uh, might not that they might come to understanding. So it stands to reason that these revelations would look different if those weaknesses were corrected or their language had vocabulary for things they might not otherwise understand. If if Joseph were to get these revelations today, we can be certain that they look significantly different. And that's kind of the point as a living church. Revelations from God can take on different shapes as we gain more information or change our social location. Point is, there's a human imprint on our text. And that's the primary place I want to take this conversation where section 134 is concerned, because by the time we get to the end of section 134, we're going to see a massive and disturbing human fingerprint, but they start relatively early. In verse 1, uh, for example, we got something that I can kind of rock with as it states something that's stated a few times in scripture, that governments were instituted of God. But we also got to make sure we acknowledge that that does not mean 
every government is instituted mm-hmm. of God. Throughout the entire Bible, starting perhaps as early as King Nimrod, who built the Tower of uh, Babel, there is a running critique of kingship that can basically be reduced to kings are useless and dangerous. So again, not all governments, just government in general. And, and further, look at what it specifies here when talking about our accountability in relation to governments. Making laws and administering them for the good and safety of society. Those are the two things it specifies in verse one. It's interesting that what is not specified here is the keeping of these laws, though that is spoken of later in this section, Mm -hmm. with the caveat that the laws are instituted with our interest as individuals and a society. That's the part where we tend to have a lot of disagreement in this country. What exactly is in our best interests? And then we decide which laws will civilly disobey or which ones will sustain. And depending on who you are, we might disobey laws that are meant to protect everyone or we might sustain laws that oppress others. So there's still right. an, an ambiguity yeah. here that I don't know if we want to take time to parse. Right. And I think it goes back to like, how does this function? And I think this does not function so much as an idea at least the way I read it, as an idealized final word of, of, of what we would say in ideal circumstances. But it does say what the saints had to say in the 1830s to their neighbors around them who were eyeing them with suspicion. And I'm not saying it justifies right. the way they, they took it, but that we need to understand the historical context which made the saints feel that they need to demonstrate their loyalty. And we see the same thing in the uh, the articles of faith where they overemphasize and protest how loyal they are to we believe in being subject to kings, rulers, presidents, and magistrates in honoring, obeying, and sustaining mm-hmm. the law, if I have that worded right. But yeah, and so this is really geared towards outsiders. And here's the funny thing, both in Kirtland and in the Nauvoo period and in the Utah period, there's one thing we said to the world, and then there's one thing we said among the insiders, those in the know, and those were different. Mm-hmm. And who's mm-hmm. to say, like, whether that was right or not? Who's to say whether that um, ended up causing more problems? But, for example, in DNC, uh, the, the section 10, original 1835, section 101, they're proclaiming no polygamy, right? However, Joseph had mm-hmm. already been um, in the process of becoming acquainted with with what he felt the Lord was he- telling him to do in terms of, of polygamy, right? And so, and then same thing in Kirtland mm-hmm. uh, in Nauvoo. Once once Joseph was actually practicing polygamy and his inner circle was practicing polygamy, they told the world one thing. And they told the inner circle another thing. And oppressed people have to do that sometimes. They do have to tell the world one mm-hmm. thing and they have to you know, be in the know. And we see this in the New Testament. There's a, a substantial amount of likely anti-Roman cryptograms in the New Testament where there were messages of hope and liberation mm-hmm. either among mm-hmm. the, the Jews or uh, the later Christians that uh, said one thing 
that would be understood by Rome or any Roman powers, and then one thing on the inside. And it could be that some of our most um, problematic statements, like in Romans chapter 13, this is the one, and I don't have it in front of me, and I didn't prepare this, so this is all from from, uh, memory. But it says, Paul is saying that the the government powers, the powers that be, are put in their place in some sense by God. And mm-hmm. well, what does that mean? And this could be an instance of irony, like, oh, the emperor would never do anything that, that, that God doesn't want, right? And it could be that people mm-hmm. on the inside, people in the know, because Paul is writing literally to Rome, right, at the heart of the beast. Right. And right. it could be that Paul had to write it that way, knowing that people on the on the inside would know to interpret it the other way in, in an ironic sense. And it could be that you have some sort of double speak happening here in Romans 13, where it says, oh, the powers that be have been put in their place by God. Well, that could mean it. you could be put in your place in an ordained way, or you could be put in your place in a like, well, no. Christ is the king of the entire world, and that puts everyone else in a subordinate place, right? And so mm-hmm. if you read between the lines of Romans, you end up having Christ as king. And so it's a matter of, like, how do you take that responsibly? What was Paul doing? What did he have to say in order to survive? What did what did the saints in Kirtland have to say in order to survive? Like, And this is where mess happens. This is why it's not a Disney movie. Like— the Bible is not a children's book. DNC is not a children's book. There's going to be mess. There's going to be stuff that happens. It's not going to be pretty. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to say categorically, like, this piece of it was good and justified and this piece wasn't. I would have to do a lot more work to, to do that. But I'm just going to acknowledge some of the mess around government. And we're going to get to some of this mess later when we look at verse 12. But I just wanted to say one thing about mm-hmm. verse 4. I'm going to read all of verse 4. Yeah, read it all says, of It says, we four. believe that religion is instituted of God and that men are amenable to him and to him only for the exercise of it unless their religious opinions prompt them to infringe upon the rights and liberties of others. Let me pause and and paraphrase with what I think it's saying. What I think it's saying is, right. well, you know, religion is between you and God unless you are using that religion to hurt others, and then it's no longer just between you and God. Now it's actually, mm-hmm. we got to do something about that. And you are not allowed to use right. your religious opinions to infringe upon the rights and liberties of others. You cannot claim that as religious freedom to use your religion and say, oh, it's just between me and God when you're trying to use that to oppress the rights and liberties of others. Then it says, but we do not believe that human law has a right to interfere in prescribing rules of worship to bind the consciences of men, nor dictate forms for public or private devotion, that the civil magistrate should restrain crime but never control conscience, should punish guilt but never suppress the freedom of the soul. So here we have one of the clearest texts in the Doctrine and Covenants for marriage equality. Like if other religions, Mm -hmm. people say, oh, well, marriage is between a man and woman. Yeah, that's your religious belief, and you can't impose that using the secular government on people who do not even share your religion. Like we should Mm -hmm. not use the government to make others 
obey the principles of Mormonism or practice Mormonism, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it is very clear that if you take verse 4 on its face value, using your religious beliefs, even if they're sincerely held, to infringe upon the rights and liberties of others to practice their religion. There are some religions out there who have already uh, same-gender marriage as part of their sacramental worship. Um, the UCCs, the Unitarian Universalists, the Episcopal Church, they have same-sex marriage as part of their religion. And so during this time, and they had it as part of their religion uh, during this whole mess in the mid-2000s where the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was trying to oppose uh, civil marriage for uh, same-gender couples. And I'm like, that violates verse 4. It clearly violates verse 4. And what we're trying to do is saying we should not allow the Episcopalians or the Unitarian Universalists to have legal same-sex marriage as part of their religion because our religion says it's a no-no. So, But this is, uh, like, I'm saying the same thing like five times in a row because I can't I can't read verse four any other way. What do you think of all that? Mm-hmm. No, I noticed the same thing. I noticed the, uh, and I noticed the following clause as well. Uh, we do not believe that human law has a right to interfere in prescribing rules of worship to bind the consciences of men, nor dictate forms for public or private devotion. Like, why, what does what does homophobia have to do with your worship? What does it have to do with your devotion? You know. I, I found I found that word choice very specific. Well, maybe they're also... worshiping straight supremacy instead of worshiping Christ. Ooh, ooh, Oops. ooh! I was not ready for that, Derek. I was Just not like ready jokes, for that. You're not ready for those either. But... <laughs> Correct. Not ready for those. You know, one yeah. of the blessings of doing this with you, Derek, is it has made me. It has made me read my scriptures for one thing, and it mm-hmm. made me read read them through a particular lens so that I can be a decent conversation partner. And But it also made me realize how validating so much of our own text is. This is really the part that made me want to go to divinity school in the first place. It was seeing exactly how affirming our text was and trying to figure out ways to, you know, break those affirming bits into our, into our faith. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, counting how many times I've heard you, Derek, say in your exasperated voice, it's in the scriptures, you know, just that, that hit me especially here. Like Derek, we, we, we wrote this, this ain't, just mm-hmm. in the Bible. This is in our Latter-day scriptures. This this sentence is in, like, these verses are in texts specific to our faith, and we are not living into them, which just makes me wonder what is wrong with us. Like, what else, what, what else do we got to do? What else are we not doing? I mean, there's a lot of other questions I could ask, but this is just a long-winded, rambly way of saying that I agree with you, Derek. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah, and, yes, but what I don't yes, understand sir. is why our church leaders didn't look at verse 4 and say, you know what? We've got to let this one go. I get that, yeah, within your own church, you can you can make your own rules. Okay, that's, that's one thing, right? But trying to get other mm-hmm. people to, to, yeah, it just does not make any sense to me. And 
Um, yeah, and there's there's leaders of this church that are going to uh, have to wrestle with with how they failed on this. Um, and it's clear that they failed. Mm-hmm. It's clear it was clear at the time, and it's even clearer afterward to more people how wrongheaded it was to oppose the rights and liberties of of others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially given the irony around polygamy and how we had a time where uh, we were practicing some a form of marriage that was not legal. And like, why don't we have empathy for, yeah, I just don't know. Neither do I. Neither do I. Uh, you, you've said this several episodes ago, but, you know, the question I was reading as I went through this is, you know, very broadly, what is wrong with us? You know, what is wrong with Christians in general? Um, I was reading about uh, Walter White uh, and uh, Woodby you know, some pastors in the early 1900s, late 1800s and talking. And one of them critiqued the Bible or just critiqued Christianity as a prime ground for uh, what he called lynching mania. And then would be would also acknowledge the Bible as a liberatory and, you know, a socialist text. That was kind of his thing. And then we were also talking about today's weaponization of Christian texts as a means Mm -hmm. to commit violence Mm -hmm. and oppress marginalized Mm -hmm. communities. And it seems like just based on that reading and based on what we got here, we don't read our Christian texts as well or as thoroughly as we'd like to believe mm-hmm. we do, which leads me to believe, what are we even doing at church? Yeah, you know, what is our, what is our, what is our religion if we can read section one thirty four, and then be homophobic mm-hmm. and transphobic mm-hmm. and you know all kinds of queerphobic? What is our religion? if we can read the Bible and lynch black people, yeah. like what, what is, if we can stop our ears at, you know, anything that just makes us uncomfortable, if we can commit these atrocities and then simultaneously miss every reference to equity and liberation and, you know, mm-hmm. other similar ideas, like, what does that say about us? Like, are we just, are we not, are we not smart? Like, are we sp- are we spiritually diseased? Is there something more insidious than that going on? Like this has been like the question I've been pondering all week and just was forced to ponder more as I read these texts, just broadly, what is wrong with us? And mm-hmm. like, what mm-hmm. do we do to fix it? I, I know that's not really something we have time to discuss at length because that is indeed the question, but um, just having to like confront all of that stuff at once just made me sit with that more than I wanted to. And it just made me feel a kind of way. And speaking of of these things, I'm real curious about uh, where our conversation on verse 12 is going to go. Oh, good Lord. Okay. Um, (laughs) Okay. Let me just, you know, read this um, real quick. Verse 12 might be, to me, the verse with the clearest imprint of white supremacy in our scriptures, even as it attempts to, you know, wrestle mm-hmm. with itself. So this is what it says. We believe it just to preach the gospel to the nations of the earth and warn the righteous to save themselves from the corruption of the world. So far, so yeah. good. There's but, that word, but. But, it says, always that word, but. 
always a big but. It says, we do not believe it right to interfere with bond servants. And, you know, bond servants, just to make sure we don't get this twisted, we're talking about the enslaved. We do not believe it right to interfere with the enslaved, neither preach the gospel to, nor baptize them contrary to the will and wish of their masters, nor to meddle with or influence them in the least to cause them to be dissatisfied with their situations in this life, thereby jeopardizing the lives of men. Such interference we believe to be unlawful and unjust and dangerous to the peace of every government allowing human beings to be held mm. in servitude. Right? Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, let, let's just acknowledge out the gate that this would not fly today. Y- you can't say that you encourage folks to flee the corruption of the world mm-hmm. And then in the next sentence, state a belief that validates the condition of the enslaved. Like, what is that? That that literally, I that was such intellectual whiplash for me trying to read those two clauses next to each other. I, I never saw, I mean, I don't want to say this either, but it's just like such a jarring, clear contradiction. And this language, it's almost humorous that we shouldn't say or do anything to cause the enslaved to be dissatisfied with their situations. As if, for one thing, they're not already dissatisfied. And two, that they shouldn't be dissatisfied with their condition as slaves. Like, And and should they become dissatisfied, it would jeopardize the the lives of men. Which men, Derek? Which men? White people. Which men? Yeah. Exactly. And such interference, we believe to be unlawful and unjust and dangerous. Unjust to who? Dangerous to who? Yeah. Like, who is it? Who is this talking about? The peace of every government allowing human beings to be held in servitude. Like, yeah, that should be threatened. Yep. I, I fail to see the problem here. Like, what, what's going on, Oliver? Like, I don't know who to address this to, but like, y- y'all say this like it's a problem. What is the problem here? Like, should we not be upsetting and threatening an institution that, you know, enslaves human mm-hmm. lives? Like, yep, preach it. You know, I, I don't I, I don't want to minimize what you said earlier about, you know, this kind of double speak we got to engage in as an oppressed people. Like, let's not forget where the saints were at this particular point mm-hmm. in history. 1835, they were not getting very they were not getting along very well with with the Missourians. And part of that was because of, you know, they weren't sure how we felt about slavery. So, you know, I do want to acknowledge this is perhaps something to, you know, protect themselves. But also at the same time, I have to acknowledge 1835, Joseph Smith wasn't yet an abolitionist. Mm -hmm. You know, neither were most of the brethren. They were not abolitionists yet. And uh, Joseph Smith's feelings about that, that would change in the 1840s. He would become an abolitionist. He would you know, call for the abolition of the institution of slavery. And I do want to acknowledge that. But, you know, just trying to read verse 12, like this is proof positive that the leaders of the church, that the church itself was afflicted with the disease of white supremacy. That's not really a surprise, but it can be Mm -hmm. something that we're tempted to gloss over for various reasons. And also, it's not often that we see this clear of a human fingerprint in our sacred text. Like we, I remember like a year, whenever it was ago that we read second Nephi chapter five and we had to wrestle, you know, 
with the human imprint that Nephi was writing with as he spoke about the separation of the Nephites from the Lamanites, as he talked about the dark skin Mm -hmm. and, you know, all Mm -hmm. that other stuff. Just we got to acknowledge that Nephi was indeed human. And this was right after he wrote his psalm in section Mm -hmm. in in a second Nephi chapter four about being, you know, an imperfect man whose sins doth so easily beset him. And, you know, I remember you asked this question, what sins, Nephi? Why didn't you name your own sins? You'd be talking about lineal <laughs> sins. You don't be talking about your own. And then we get yeah. to verse five, and then we see the effect of Nephi's trauma on his writing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, oh, here it is. Here's the human imprint. We're going to see a lot of human fingerprints when we get to the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. A, a whole lot mm-hmm. of human mm-hmm. fingerprints. A whole lot of questionable behavior, and a yep. whole like a whole lot is happening in there. Yeah. But yeah, here, bro, just. It was right there. Like we saw white supremacy in full force as we just watched these words try to excuse and justify the Mm -hmm. existence of Mm -hmm. slavery, justify being complicit in slavery. And uh, that has a lot of implications for how we talk about racism in a church context. It has a lot of implications for how we talk about the scriptural canon. It has implications for how we talk about church leadership in general. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of conversations we could have just on this one observation. And, uh, you know, I want to get your feelings on this as well, but I also want to see if there's any other conversations. Well, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm honored uh, that starts for that. I, as a white person, you've invited my feelings on this. Um, cause I, there's a sense in which (laughs) like my input and feelings don't matter. Um, well, I want to lift this up for a second because here's the thing. I don't want to necessarily be doing this work. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? I'm happy to draw attention to it. But ultimately, the work of deconstructing whiteness, that is a right. white people thing, a white people which thing. is why I very much Which is why I wanted, to, why I wanted to have this conversation and why, why yeah, why I asked to, yeah, okay. to talk about it. But the, the, the sort, of, sort of where I want to go back, of course, the, the, the cheat, actually... I just realized whenever I talk about the Bible, I'm actually cheating because I'm basically using a shortcut and, and finding a way of, of saying something that <laughs> so I don't have to do the work myself. But I want to talk a little bit about Paul. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's three texts that I'm thinking of. And the first one is in 1 Corinthians 7, where he actually talks about this very issue. And Paul isn't as behind as this is, Paul is willing to share the gospel with enslaved people. Paul, here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 20, uh, 21 through 23. And I'm going to read the English Standard Version here. It says, "Okay, Were you a bond servant when, you, when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord is a for he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. And so there's a sense in which he's planting seeds that really challenge the whole free enslaved binary, right? He doesn't call for the, mm-hmm. obviously, he does not call for the empire-wide abolition of the practice of slavery. But what he does do is say, yeah, we can, there's there's enslaved people in Corinth that we shared the gospel with, that we baptized, that we, we did this. And if they can gain their freedom, 
then go ahead and do so. Um, he uh, sort of um, then in this is similar to well Philemon, where he um, preaches the gospel to a an enslaved person without his enslaver's consent. Like it was kind of mm-hmm. like afterward, mm-hmm. um, uh, Philemon hears about it, right? And mm-hmm. there is something in the gospel that I don't know if I have the right to say this, but there is something in the gospel that makes enslaved people want to be free, right? And I think that's mm-hmm. why that's exactly mm-hmm. why DNC 134 says not to do it. Right. Do not share the gospel mm-hmm. with enslaved people because that will make them want to be free because that is what Christ is all about. And so I think there, even mm-hmm. ironically, it testifies of the power of the gospel on the side of abolition to say, well, don't share the gospel with enslaved people. I don't know if that's uh, any comfort at all, but but there <laughs> is something powerful about the gospel in that in Christ there's neither slave nor free as Paul says in Galatians 3:28 of course and so what i'm saying is mm-hmm. that i kind of uh, well it's it's uh what what i find problematic is that we have this as part of our canonized uh, scriptures but we don't have any subsequent rebuttal uh, um, from Joseph, any revelation that clearly mm-hmm. is pro-abolition. Like, we've got some pro-abolition stuff here and there, but I wish we had a clearer repudiation of verse 12 than we have. Right now, this stands right. as Scripture. Right. And mm-hmm. um, I would love to to uh, to not have, to, to have the record show something different. And, of course, my point is that this, what Oliver's doing, isn't even faithful to, to where Paul was. And I'm not saying Paul was perfect on this, but it's not even right up to where Paul was, right? And he was dealing with all of the same uh, persecution and mistrust and uh, people feeling weird about the emerging Christian movement. So he was dealing with all of that stuff himself and had every reason to cooperate with Rome in order to appease them Mm -hmm. and blend in and gain something for himself. But it's like what Jesus said, what Mm -hmm. does it profit you if you gain the world and you lose your soul? I think that's exactly what Mm -hmm. this whole thing about peace in verse 12 is doing. He's saying, Oliver is saying, you know what? Mm -hmm. We're going to sell our souls so we can keep some peace. I'm like, yeah, that's not worth it. That's (laughs) not worth it. So I probably should stop there. Is there any uh, final thoughts you want to share with regard to Um, 134? I think probably looking at 134 back to 132, 133, all of these things, one of the most helpful things, and it would be hard to do, is sort of a literary analysis, like I said, of looking at the sources. Because if you're trying to get behind, well, what was Joseph thinking in section 132? One of the clearest ways of reading his mind is to see how he treated his sources and what did he quote and how did he um, modify the language? How What did he draw from? Because that's, that's probably the only way we can get behind all of these human fingerprints is to really see, um, compare what 
the text is doing, how he uses it, what was it doing in the original context he lifted it from, stuff like that. And then we can really mm -hmm. get a thorough analysis of, and then same thing with 133, what's all that stuff doing? And then 134 as well. Um, and seeing what I to what jumps out to me there is the lack of scriptural allusions, right? I think that speaks to mm -hmm. the degree of authority that this thing has. Like, there's no backing for um for what Oliver is saying in verse twelve. Like, I can't find any scriptural backing for that. Mm -hmm. So maybe that yeah. leads to um a way of determining how. Uh, how much weight that that text should have, and of course it shouldn't have any um, to begin with. But um, what do we do with it now that it's still in our canon? And there's going to be stuff. There's stuff in the in the biblical canon that I can't just delete. So what do we do anyway? That's probably all I should say. Is um, yeah, do some literary analysis and see what these sources used and how they were used and what the person was thinking when they did it. Solid. Solid. With that, then, let's go ahead and uh, wrap things up. But before we do, I want to remind you guys that uh, Dialogue, a Journal of a Mormon Thought, has a new podcast partner we want to put you on to called uh, the Fireside Podcast with Blair Hodges. Features in-depth interviews about religion and culture featuring brilliant writers, scholars, activists, and more. If you're spiritual but not religious or religious but not spiritual or something else entirely, there's a seat safe for you at Fireside. Learn more and listen to Fireside by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Uh, Brother Derek, where can folks find us? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at btblds. And you can find us on Facebook. And you can also find our outlines at tinyurl.com slash btboutlines where you can get a condensed version of what it is we say each week along with some uh, outlines of the Holy Human and Faithful Feminist podcasts. And yeah, they actually, they also did some really great work this week. Uh, I just want to lift up uh, the conversations that they've had on polygamy this week, that this past week that we certainly couldn't have. But, um, you know, we're forced to confront that when we read section 32. And, uh, you know, they did a great job with their with uh, their mini series that uh, Faithful Feminists did. And I just saw that uh, Holy Human has also produced some content on it. So, uh I definitely would hope that you guys check those perspectives mm -hmm. uh, because they are important to the uh, conversation on polygamy, on marriage, and, you know, on institutionalization of certain principles regarding marriage in general. So just make sure you check those out. Like the whole reason that all these podcasts, all these content creators exist in the first place is to provide perspective that we might not otherwise have and that we are worse off without. So uh, definitely check those out. I uh, also wanted to uh, thank David Doyle for editing the transcripts, Stephanie Martz and Angela Carter for being a big help with uh, social media stuff, and of course the incredible team who is assembling mm -hmm. those episode outlines that Derek was just telling you about, Stephanie Peterson, uh, Gabrielle Honda, Christine Lestarge, Jen Altman, 
and uh, Beth Johnson. Also want to send a thank you uh, thank you all to uh, those who have shared the video that we dropped, uh, I think, a week ago. And I've shared it with your leaders and shared it with your friends and stuff. Really trying to uh, get this to folks so they, they just, you know, I'm really not trying to have any black person or anybody in general go into Sunday school or any kind of come follow me discussion where people are propagating problematic myths about the origin of the priesthood band, thereby taking away such valuable time we can be using to discuss where we go from here, uh, how we reckon with our past and stuff like that. I just want to have those problematic parts of the conversation taken care of before mm -hmm. y'all even had that conversation. Sunday school is already too short as it is. And we're already trying to discuss articles of faith as well as uh, what do you call it? Uh, official declaration one in that same right. lesson. So we have done, you know, the majority of the work for y'all, all y'all got to do is share that video or make sure that the people that you are going to be having that conversation with have seen it. So we can spend our entire conversation talking about what we should be talking about with regard to the priesthood ban and mm -hmm. uh, the priesthood and temple restrictions and everything else that that means for us as a church. So, um, yeah, yeah, thank you guys who have been sending that forth. If you haven't if you haven't shared it with anybody yet, uh, definitely would encourage you to do so because again, I'm not trying to deal with any nonsense come Sunday, December twelfth. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a great video. Thank you, Derek. I appreciate you. And it was you made that. great by not having me in it because I would have <laughs> I would have like tripled the length of the first piece. This of is it. the only reason Derek don't be in any of my videos, guys, because you know it's gonna be. You know it's going to be at least three or four times the length it needs to be. This is why Derek is going to have a class. This is why he's going to have his online class. Oh, so class. he can just speak to his heart's content about all this stuff. Yeah. Brevity is just not going to be a thing if I try to release these videos, <laughs> any of these videos. But there's just, always more to say. Like I want There be is. There is always I more think to there's, say. There's a problem in, in our church culture where we want to just get the short version or we want to um get the thing that will make us feel good but not you know i think there's a and i just that's not me um no it's not so it is really not you oh well that yeah man that's why we love you though like oh, you have thanks. a lot to say a lot of good things to say about things that matter oh, and uh, that is a strength that is a thanks. strength thank you all for tuning in till we meet again next week Okay, till we meet again next week. Bye, everyone.